is one of his greatest acts, of course, is dying for our sins. But So I get that. But portraying the our Savior on the cross as they do, he, he's not on that cross anymore. He's alive. I like that thought better. Um, and we certainly celebrate the death of Jesus every time we have the Lord's Supper or communion, if you want to call it. And we need to share that part as well. And as you hear me say, we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Um, that is an important part, that he got up from the grave. He didn't stay there. He just needed to rent the tomb for the weekend. And that's all it was. All it was. And so he got to borrow that from Joseph of Arimathea. So here we are reading about that first Easter Resurrection Sunday and women who got up early to go to the tomb. Now, I'll give you some context. You know, this is kind of the thing where we've, got to is I like all the information that's available to us today but when the Jews buried their dead they buried their dead immediately quickly same day okay they didn't do the embalming process they didn't believe in the embalming process so therefore you got to get them in the ground quickly okay so in their their system their way of doing things their culture <coughs> they didn't cr- believe in cremating or embalming the dead it's just we get them in the in the tomb the same day and so there was a process of cloth strips that would be wrapped around each arm each leg there'd be strips and wrapped around in layers almost mummified so to say and so they would wrap them they would wrap the body part and they'd come up to the top of the neck and the face would be left open and there would be a in in this case where you see they wrapped a little more expensive, a little better, fine cloth instead of regular cloths around his head. Turban style is kind of what they would do. And so in between the layers were packed spices. The Bible talks about myrrh and aloes, it says. And so for Jesus, the Bible says in the book of John, depending on, I've seen two different interpretations. Some say 75 pounds. My NASB Bible says, which is the most accurate, by the way, um, I say that in all humility, um, says 100 pounds, okay, of uh, spices, myrrh and aloes was used. That would be every time, you know, you'd wrap a layer, put the myrrh and aloes on and keep wrapping layers. And so it was 100 pounds used on Jesus. So you can imagine in the story, even not just when we get to the stone and rolling it away, but just to be in that state and wrap that tightly with 100 pounds that stuff on you to be able to even just get up, okay? So hopefully that helps you even with the Lazarus story. When he got up and couldn't get himself unbound, people had to help him, remember? Okay, so you can imagine after being crucified, beaten, the weakened state he would be in, he couldn't have got that stuff off himself, okay? Unless somebody like God or some angels helped him, right? So these, this 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes brought to the scene uh, to help Joseph of Arimathea by Nicodemus. If you remember him, who had come to Jesus by night previously uh, while he was alive. And, and, uh, and so he, he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, both Joseph and Nicodemus are members of the Sanhedrin. Interesting, right? Because you know the trials and the final judgment thing that went, that was written for Jesus was done by the Sanhedrin. Okay, 
Interesting, right? So here are two of the Jewish leaders who saw all of this, were, were involved in all this, and end up tending to the body of Jesus, okay? Have they become believers? I'll let you investigate that and come to your conclusions, okay? Let you work on that one. But remember, this is not embalming what they're doing, but rather uh, an act of love, a ceremonial um, part of their culture that they did. It was a practi- for a practical reason, okay? A gesture of care didn't, didn't really have any preservation properties to it. Once they're done with the encasing and cloth, they would pour on these perfumes or oils. I don't know if they were essential or not. Um, some people go off biblical now of, it's just like Jesus had essential, he used essential oils, right? Be careful, right? But at some point, they would pour that on, um, but would but use these on the body after they'd been encased to, to put yet another layer. And this was for smell reasons, okay? Not to get graphic or gross, right? Since the human body decays very rapidly, okay, and they didn't do embalming, this was simply for smell reasons. I, I've been called to homes. I, I, there's the first one I can still remember very vividly, um, even the smell, where a person had been deceased for many days, uh, perhaps a couple weeks, and just pulling into this trailer park into this neighborhood, you, you got it pretty quickly. And, it, and it's, it's, it's a very unique, okay, it's something it's, it's you don't forget. It's, it's you can distinguish it from any other kind of smell. Okay, um, it was difficult to say the least, but you, you don't forget that smell. It's unmistakable, okay, if you've ever experienced it. And so for those final perfumes and oils were poured over the body to counteract the smell. That's what they're there for, okay? Now, because Joseph and Nicodemus had to work very quickly, you know, this because the day had gotten late and they were doing this in the same day, they, they got Jesus to the tomb the, the ladies that were coming weren't able to get there to do the, the last part of the perfumes and anoint his body in this manner. Uh, that is simply a loving, kind gesture that had to be skipped at that point. And the day before the resurrection was also the Sabbath, and so you couldn't travel. You could only travel a Sabbath day travel, which was you couldn't go more than two-thirds of a mile, Okay. It was forbidden, but now that the Sabbath is over, the next morning they get up before it was light so they can arrive at the tomb at sunup so that they can tend to that part of it because they cared for Jesus so much and wanted to make sure that was done. And so they arrive at the tomb, and the sun has already risen, both, okay? Mark 16, verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. I just think that's beautiful, when the sun had risen. The S-U-N, okay, you can play those word games, and I love it, had, had risen, but not only that, but the S-O-N had risen. It's so wonderful. It's easy when, you, when this has been applied to you that you can so easily get excited. I hope you can. I hope this isn't like, Oh, here, yeah, the resurrection again, okay? I get that every Easter, and I get excited about it, and that's it, okay? 
No. I get excited about something so simplistic, even in our English language of the sun and the sun. But don't you feel the spirit inside of you, I hope, also rise a little bit when you're just thinking about this again? Okay? He has risen. I was waiting for all my Catholic folks. He has risen indeed, right? He is alive. This is a huge shift in the fulcrum of human history. This is huge. This part being true changes everything. It brings validity to what he did on the cross. Paul would say without this part, without the resurrection that he didn't raise from the dead, we're just a bunch of fools. We're just believing in something that isn't true because then he was a liar. None of this was true. The resurrection is what brings that validity and brings a lot of other things for us. Okay, this part changes everything. And there's, Jesus has these credentials about him. Okay, when you look back in history, even secular, we'll say these are the impacts that he has had. Um, certain ones of these, um, it's attested to by many historians and theologians. And so the first one is his actual impact on history. Even from a secular standpoint, if you look at any works like an encyclopedia britannica remember the some of you remember the days when you had you had to go buy a bookshelf to put them all on in your living room somewhere and you had to tell the door-to-door salesman once a year i've got them right and so there you have this whole set of of encyclopedias right so any kind of work like that any major academic work or systemization uh broad historical academic works when you look up great leaders from history, right, influential people, you find that Jesus Christ has more written about him than any other leader in history, okay? More than any individual. His impact on history is just unmatched, okay? So that's the first one, his impact on history. There's three things. Second is his fulfilled prophecies. 330 prophecies written about him that he fulfilled, the odds of that happening are mathematically impossible if not for the hand of God. Like, it's just impossible. Like, you can't even get to the minute odds of what it is. It just can't happen, okay? Nobody could have made this happen. And then his third credential is the resurrection from the dead, okay? There are lots of religions in the world. There's lots of different claims. There are lots of religions. All of the religions of the world, except for four, are based on philosophies, okay? They're based on these teachings, the claims of their, the the philosophical claims of the founders. Only four are based on personalities, we'll say, okay? So like Judaism really leans on Father Abraham, right? When you get into the Jewish culture. Christianity, of course, Jesus Christ, Islam, its founder, Muhammad, right? And Buddhism, Buddha, which the original Buddha was Siddhartha Gautama was what he was called, was his name, okay? The one that came up with it. Only one of these four personalities claim to be alive still, claim a resurrection of its founder, and that's Christianity, a risen and living Lord and Savior. Not a dead guy we look back at and think how wonderful he was and his teachings were so good. The enlightenment we got from him will carry on with us forever. He's gone, but we've got his teachings, right? Not anything like that. Not anything looking back. Our God is alive and working, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. 
Like right now, Jesus is praying for you. He's talking to God about you going, man, I hope they get it. Right? Man, I, it, it, that problem they're having with the family. God, I'm praying that people make, just help them move by your Holy Spirit, help them make the right decisions and all that that's going on. Lord, help that one, Father, help that one with their, with their grief. Lord, help that one with their addiction. And he's able to do that for all of us all at the same time, okay? He's, he's pretty good, okay? He's not sitting there, Father, squirrel, okay? He's got it, okay? He's got it. He's focused, okay? He doesn't have those issues that we have. He can do it, okay? And there's a story, most likely has some validity, right? Um, a lot of preachers in the past have told this story, uh, but it's it's... I'd say it's based on fact, but I don't have names, couldn't find, okay, kind of thing. I just found the story of a, of a Muslim guy in North Africa, and um, he came to be a born-again Christian, which you know in that culture, in that place, that's a very, let's say, dangerous thing to do. I mean, you walk away from the Muslim faith in that culture, it's trouble, Okay. It's very, very difficult. Your family disowns you, much less the culture wants to get rid of you, right? <clears throat> and some friends found out about his conversion, so they come to him and they say, hey, what, what are you thinking? Like, why in the world would you convert to Christianity? And his response was, well, let me tell you, if, if you were walking along a road and you, you're going down this road, and you come to a fork in the road, and you've got a choice of which way you're going to go. And at that fork in the road, there's two guys, and one's dead and one's alive. Which one are you going to ask for directions? Well, I finally decided to ask the guy who was alive, and these are the instructions that he gave me, right? Because the dead guy can't help you any. And I just think that's wonderful, Right? So, back to our scripture. They come to the tomb on the first day of the week. That is the day Jesus rose from the dead. Let me just throw this in there because this is a, an issue even in, in our area. Um, it, it, he rose on the first day of the week. That's why Christians for 2,000 years have gathered together like we are today to, to worship Jesus on the first day of the week and celebrate Jesus being alive and worship a living Savior, okay? It worshiped on the first day of the week, not on the Sabbath, okay? There has always been those around and part of the Sabbatarian movement who claim you, you aren't worshiping God if you don't do it on Saturday on the Sabbath, right? If you don't do it on Saturday, it's not valid, so to say, Okay? Christians meet on Sunday because Jesus rose on the first day of the week is what the scripture says. Not because the Catholic Church, two, three hundred years later, told them to. You can go to the book of Acts, and they always gathered from the start of the early church on the first day of the week. They, did, they didn't gather on the Sabbath, okay? That's what the, the scripture says, okay? The, this claim that you have to gather on Saturday and worship God on Saturday is people who don't know their Bible. They're leaning on what the Catholic Church says and going, oh, see, it's Catholic Church, instead of going, oh, this is what Scripture says, okay? 
So you read over and over again in the book of Acts, other places in the New Testament, that they gathered on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, not the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. It doesn't mention them gathering on the seventh day of the week. Now, the point here is, isn't to get legalistic back towards Sabbatarians, okay? Because it can work both ways. We can become those who says, well, anybody don't get together and worship on Sunday, they're just doing it wrong if they're not doing it the first day of the week, right? And so then we turn into the same thing, okay? Listen to what Colossians 2, 8 through 17 says. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive. I love how it says this, through philosophy. Remember all those other religions based on philosophy? And empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. I just want to go off on another sermon right there, but I'll leave it alone. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. There's a whole other sermon, too, between Old Covenant and New Covenant and in Christ and the Holy Spirit and baptism and what circumcision was and what the Lord what the Passover was and the Lord's Supper now is and all this stuff of he came to fulfill the law not do away with it, right? And how that works. This is explaining it. That's why we don't have to observe all those things and we have these new ordinances of the church that Jesus has given us because he is the fulfillment of those things, right? Now where was I? Okay, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. When you, weren't, when you didn't even have all that law stuff done, it didn't matter because it's about Jesus. It's not about our works, okay? I, I love all this. I didn't even need all this. I just loved reading. I, when I was reading it, I was like, I'm going to include all that because I don't really get to the point until the end, right? Okay. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Okay, some people think, well, I'm okay with God, but I, you know, I need to be saved. One day, if I rob a bank or something, I'll be a really bad person, then I'll be God's enemy. No, we're, it, especially the proud, the Bible says God lines up. I mean, he gets down like on a football line. Uh, in the in that position, ready to go at you, he's lined up against you. Not because of he's a bad guy, but because of our sin and who we are. But I love it. It says, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So he stands up and goes, Jesus paid for it, so we're not lined up against each other anymore. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, here's the part I was trying to get to, but I love the rest of that. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Like you can't get any more plain than that, okay? Things which are a mere shadow of what it is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's now about Jesus and following him and listen to what he says, not obeying all these laws we used, that were given to us previously in the old covenant, right? Same principles still apply. It's the, it's, the, it's the same idea. It's just no longer 
well, you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this. Now, Christ has done it, and we rest in him, and we live through him, not through the temple system and sacrifices and things we used to do to appease God. Jesus did it for us. Romans 14.5 says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. That's plainly saying, listen, folks, it doesn't really matter. Just worship God. Okay? Let the Holy Spirit lead you to where you're supposed to be with that. It's up to you when you want to gather and worship. That is what the New Testament says for those who believe in Jesus. I'm persuaded in my own mind that Sunday's a great day to worship the Lord. So is Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and even Saturday, right? I'm good with all of it. We don't worship God on Sunday and then live our secular lives the rest of the week. It's not an argument, right? We gather here at TCAR on Sundays for really a more strategic reason. People are still off on the weekends, and the work week is Monday through Friday for most people, okay? I know there's exceptions. Some of you are going, well, I have to, you know. Okay, I got you. But this is still the most convenient time when you look at the research, for people to come to church. It's still the most effective time for you to invite your friend to come to church. They're more likely 